I recently heard a story about a pastor and an atheist who were both out observing nature together. And they both were looking at this mountain. The pastor looked at the mountain and he said, what a beautiful creation. I am amazed at the hands who crafted this incredible mountain and its shapes and its beauty. What incredible craftsmanship. And the, the atheist responded with, wow, what a beautiful mountain. I am in awe of the works of nature and the rivers and the wind and the earthquakes, which all resulted in this incredible, incredible mountain that we're now looking at. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. Hearing those two different perspectives, I can't really buy into one more than the other with all that being the only information I have. But then I found out that they were both looking at Mount Rushmore. Are you kidding me? You're looking at Mount Rushmore. You're looking at the faces of Thomas Jefferson, George Washington, Theodore Roosevelt, and Abraham Lincoln cut out of rock, standing 60 feet tall, and you're thinking, wow, I can't believe nature made that. I can't. I can't believe nature, na nature made that. I 100% believe that somebody made Mount Rushmore the way it is. And I open up with that story because I've been told by people my whole life that Christian faith is blind. And I just don't believe it. I don't buy into that logic. When I look outside, I do not think that my faith is blind. It is painfully obvious to me that God is real and my faith is in a real God. So that's what I'm going to be talking to you about tonight. I'm going to be talking about faith. And really, all I'm going to be covering tonight is primarily one verse and two specific points. Now, I want to keep it to two points because these two points are so life-altering. I don't want to water them down with any other ideas. The two points I'm going to be focusing on tonight are faith that God exists and faith in the God who exists. It's all about faith that and faith in. You're going to hear me repeat those phrases tonight a few times, so you're just going to need to get used to it right off the bat. So the verse that I'm mostly going to be covering is Hebrews 11:6, which says, And without faith it is impossible to please God. Because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists. My college experience was similar to what I imagine a lot of you have or are experiencing right now. My teachers constantly slipped in jabs at people who believed in God. And it didn't matter the subject. They seemed to work it in there all the time. And it was hard for me because I constantly found myself embarrassed. When I was in class, I was embarrassed that I was the one they were talking down toward. And then when I was with my Christian friends, I was embarrassed that my teachers were rattling my faith to this point. I mean, I was being told by the people who were commissioned to teach me true, honest, accurate information that science had proved that God isn't necessary. Psychology had proved that we made up God just as a coping mechanism. And sociology teaches us, or shows us, that religion 
all religion is the same or that religion is the root of all evil or a combination of those two. It kind of depends on who your teacher was in that subject. The truth is that everybody deals with doubt at some point, whether it's caused by teachers or just your own thoughts or whatever it is. Um, everybody deals with doubts at some point or in some way at life. But God does not intend for you to live in doubt. As a wise old man once said, I find your lack of faith disturbing. Or as the Bible says, now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. That's Hebrews 11.1. 1. God wants you to have confident, assured faith in him. If I'm living my life with constant doubt on the back of my mind, I'm living a double-minded life. James 1, 6 through 8 says, One who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. You cannot live a sold-out life for Jesus if you're keeping this cop-out in your back pocket that maybe what I see is really all there is to existence and there's no afterlife, there's no heaven or hell, there's no God. If you're keeping that on the back of your mind or just in your back pocket to pull out at some point, if you're kind of like all done believing in God, you are going to live a double-minded life and it's not going to work. I've done it. I tried it. What happened is I had these questions and concerns about my faith, even growing up in the church, and I didn't get them answered. What happens is unanswered questions turn into doubts, even if there was a legitimate answer for them. So I tried living this double-minded life where I had these heavy doubts I didn't talk to anybody about or didn't try to get answers about. Eventually, I came to the point where I just had to. I had to try to start finding answers. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to share with you some of my favorite and most helpful answers I've found. Now, some of this is adapted from Frank Turek's I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. So the first question to battle is, does truth exist? Does truth even exist? Now, if anyone ever claims there is no truth, oh, mercy. All you have to do is say, wow, is that true? <laughs> That's it, because it's a self-defeating statement. Truth doesn't exist is a truth claim. So it can't be true if it is true. Just doesn't make sense. Or there's the claim that there's no absolute truth. Well, is that absolutely true? <laughs> Again, self-defeating. You don't have to argue with that. Just let it defeat itself. And then the next one is a little trickier and honestly a lot more popular. And this is the statement that, well, sure, maybe that's true for you, but it's not true for me. So this is the belief that truth is relative. If you struggle with this, ask yourself this question. Is that true for everybody? Is all truth relative? See, in order for relative truth to be true, it has to be universally applied. It means it has to be universally true. If truth is universally relative, it proves itself wrong by being universally true and proving there is absolute universal truth that isn't relative. The next question to tackle is, does God even exist? 
First argument I'm going to talk about here is the cosmological argument. Now, for a while, people claimed that God wasn't necessary because the universe was eternal. <clears throat> Wrong. <laughs> it's just not true. In the last 100 years, we've concretely proved that the universe is not eternal, that it did have a beginning. Even famous theoretical physicists, cosmologists, and atheists Stephen Hawking said, Almost everyone now believes that the universe and time itself had a beginning. Now, if the universe had a beginning, it had a beginner. Nothing starts without being started. The beginner of existence had to exist outside of existence in order to be the creator. Otherwise, they would be a part of the creation. So our creator must exist outside of time and space as we know it. Sounds kind of like God, right? This is exactly what the Bible has said for 2,000 years. I'm serious. This is literally was written down 2,000 years ago in Hebrews 11.3. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed by God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. Now, up until the last 100 years or so, we didn't have scientific evidence for this. So Christians believed it on the word of God. Now it's been proven true by science. I just love how well science and the reality of God come together. And it makes sense because God made science. Science should just more and more point us back to God. Now in, con in contradiction to the Bible and science, some still religiously cling to their atheistic views. And they try to make an explanation that no one created something out of nothing. No, <laughs> sorry, I have to laugh. No one made something out of nothing. That doesn't make any sense. Whereas the theistic view is that someone made something out of nothing. Now that makes a, a lot more sense. If I'm holding a pizza here, and you ask me where this pizza came from, and I said, I was holding it in my hand and it just materialized. Nothing caused it, no person, no thing. It came out of nowhere. The atoms that make up the pepperoni and cheese and sauce and crust didn't exist before. Nothing caused them, just poof. Suddenly it was in my hand. Would you believe me? Is there any way I could have logically gone from seeing a physical pizza to saying it materialized out of nothing with no cause? No, because that's not how reality works. I honestly would pose to you to look at these two statements on the screen. That no one created something out of nothing or that someone created something out of nothing. And tell me which one looks more logically founded and which one looks more mystical. What we'll be covering next is the teleological argument, which is talking about the fine-tuning of the universe. And for this, we're going to be watching a short video clip. Strobel learned that life also hinges on the precise strengths and relative values of many different physical constants. One example of this fine-tuning is the force of gravity. Imagine a ruler divided up into one-inch increments and then stretched across the entire universe, a distance of some 14 billion light years. 
For the purposes of illustration, the ruler represents the possible range for gravity. In other words, the setting for the strength of gravity could have been anywhere along the ruler, but it just happens to be situated in exactly the right place so that life is possible. Now, if you were to change the force of gravity by moving the setting just one inch compared to the entire width of the universe, the effect on life would be catastrophic. No large-scale life forms could exist. Anything that was more than the size of a pea would be completely crushed. So you might be able to get life of a very, very primitive sort, such as bacteria, but you could never get conscious observers. The strength of gravity is just one of at least 30 separate parameters that must be finely tuned to produce a life-sustaining universe. Another example is the cosmological constant. The cosmological constant describes the expansion speed of space in the universe. If space expands too quickly, then the universe will spread out so quickly that material objects can't form. So you can't get stars and galaxies and planets and the types of things that we, of course, take for granted in our universe. Physicists have determined that the cosmological constant is fine-tuned to one part in a hundred million, billion, 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 billion. Such precision has been compared to traveling hundreds of miles into space, then throwing a dart at the Earth and hitting a bullseye measuring one trillionth of a trillionth of an inch in diameter, an area less than the width of a single atom. Just consider those two parameters, gravity and the cosmological constant. Their level of fine-tuning is to a precision of one part in a hundred million trillion, 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 trillion. I mean, that's like one atom in the entire known universe. Now, there are three possible explanations for why the universal gravitational force is so finely tuned. Option one, is that it's physically necessary for it to be so. It's actually not. It could have been anywhere, but it happens to be on the very specific point where intelligible life could exist. The second option is chance. I just don't have enough faith to believe that happened by chance. Also, who's chance? The rapper? Like, who are you talking? What is chance? It's just answering a question with a question mark. I don't, I don't buy that. Now the third option is that this very specific fine-tuned element was made precisely that way by a very intelligent creator. That makes the most sense to me. I want to cover how I handle doubt now, because all of these things are true, but that doesn't mean I don't still struggle with doubt, even knowing this stuff. Romans 1.20 says, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they're without excuse. Now, I consider these four logical arguments for the existence of God whenever I'm struggling with doubts. And some days I just struggle with doubt more than others. The four arguments are where there's creation, there must be a creator. Where there's design, there must be a designer. Where there's order, there must be someone establishing order. And where there is art, there must be an artist. Now, truthfully, 
What I do usually when I'm struggling with doubt is I look at a tree, which is kind of a funny thing to do, but it really works for me. I literally do this. I'll look at a tree and I'll think about the complex systems that are happening to keep that tree alive, how all of the cells, I don't know how many millions or billions of cells are making up that tree, and they're all working in unison to give this tree life. Then I consider the systems within each of those cells that are necessary for them to stay alive and to do their job correctly. It's insane. I, as soon as I start tracking down that path, the doubts start just trickling out of my mind because I can't see that happening by chance, by just a question mark. There's much too complex of a system to have come about by random selection. Psalm 77:11 says, I will remember the works of the Lord. Yes, I will remember the amazing things you did long ago. So this is the other way I combat doubt now in my life, is I remember the incredible things God has done in my life and in the people around me. And as soon as I start thinking about this, honestly, I start to feel silly and a little guilty about having doubted God in the first place. Because at this point in my life, I've seen so consistently God's track record of being faithful and doing amazing things that it's insulting it's insulting in my mind, my own mind towards God to doubt his existence and his reality. Now, belief that God exists is what I've been talking about up until now. And this is not all that Hebrews eleven six says about faith. Here's the rest of the verse. And without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Now, this is the second part I told you at the beginning that I was going to cover. Faith is about believing in God. A lot of people believe that God exists, but do not trust God. A lot of people are fast to believe that Jesus died for their sins and that he paved the way for them to get to heaven, which is absolutely true. But then when it comes to living the life Jesus calls them to live, they say, whoa, whoa. I'm not a religious fanatic or anything. I just believe in God. No, you don't. You believe that God, if that statement is true about you. You believe that God is a religious figurehead, not a real person who has real opinions and real feelings and whose opinions and feelings are exactly correct. And you can 100% trust what he says about how to live life. David Platt says it like this. If you can trust Jesus to save you for all eternity, then surely you can trust him to lead you on this earth and not just to lead you, but to satisfy you every step of the way. When you realize who Jesus is, you realize that it's not dangerous to surrender to him. It's dangerous to not surrender to him. See, biblical faith will show up in your daily life. How do I know this? Because God told me. He didn't tell me through a dream. I'm not claiming the gift of prophecy in this moment. He actually told me very plainly in the Bible. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? James 2.14 You believe that there is one God? Good. 
Even the demons believe that and shudder. James 2.19 As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. James 2.26 God put this in the Bible. He gave us a road map to show us clearly that faith leads to action. It is logically incoherent to say that you believe in God who wrote this and then passively live your life when it's the way he says, when it's convenient for you. Now, the Bible doesn't only tell us about faith. It actually shows us. It's awesome. This Hebrews chapter 11 I'm talking about, the whole rest of the chapter gives example after example of people who lived their life with faith in God. Hebrews 11.1, 1, we covered, says, Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. And then Hebrews 11.3 says, By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. The whole rest of this chapter covers story after story of amazing faith of individuals that God used to shake the whole world. See, faith that doesn't lead to action isn't faith. Biblical faith always leads to action. Bold, brave, obedient action. It's so sad to me that so many people believe that being a Christian is boring. But seeing how many Christians live their lives in a boring way shows me that it's actually a logical conclusion that they've come to. Christians should be pursuing God's will for their life so intently that they daily pray Psalm 138.3 When I cried out for help, you answered me. You made me bold and energized me. Maybe the reason you've been feeling bored in your faith is that you're not actually living out your faith in a biblical way. A bored Christian is not an obedient Christian. Romans 12.11 says, Let never be lazy. But work hard and serve the Lord enthusiastically. Passive faith is for a passive God. Jesus Christ is anything but passive. Having faith in God means living in such a way that only makes sense if God is real. Which, by the way, means that the way you live your life as a Christian shouldn't make sense to everybody who doesn't believe in God. And my big question for you is what action of faith do you need to take next? Because that's all we can really focus on is what is the next action step God wants us to take in our faith? The beginning of Hebrews chapter 12 says this in summary about all those incredible stories I just referenced. I really encourage you to go read those for yourself. But here's what Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 says. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now from this, I have a few suggestions of what action might God might be calling you toward. Is God calling you to give up a distraction that is hindering you from doing all that God wants you to do 
Maybe it's something so simple as social media or video games. Being lazy with your time management in this shelter-in-place time we are currently living in. If so, don't be intimidated by that. That is such a simple problem. Doesn't mean it's an easy problem, but that's a pretty simple problem to start working on. You can start working on that tonight after challenge. The next question is maybe God's calling you to finally be rid of that sin you've allowed to linger in your life. You could find someone who's more spiritually mature than you and talk to them about it. Or you could finally take responsibility for the fact that nobody is making you give in to that sin. It's your choice. And if you're a Christian, that God has already given you the power to say no. I don't know if anyone's ever told you that before, but I'm telling you it right now. If you are a Christian watching this and you've been just struggling and struggling, like beating your head against the wall with the same sin over and over, you don't know what to do about it. God has given you the power to say no to that already. You need to, in faith, stand on him. Go look up 1 Corinthians 10, 13 tonight if this is you. Stand on his promise and say no the next time you're facing temptation. I'm not saying it's going to be easy. I'm saying you can do it because God will help you. That's an amazing, amazing thing that I've personally experienced. That's why I want to share it so specifically with you. The next one is maybe God's calling you to persevere in an area you're tempted to slack off or give up in. This could be a relationship that you've been putting off clearing up. Or maybe you've just been slacking off in spiritual disciplines like scripture memory or prayer. I know I've personally been having a really hard time with that during the shelter in place. Like scripture memory and prayer have really, I do them very sporadically and I've not been very disciplined. And God really convicted me of that in this last week. And I've been trying to take it more seriously. And surprise, surprise, I've been having a lot better week this last week. It's amazing when you, when you pursue your relationship with God, how much better life goes last idea, it goes right along with this, is that is God calling you to be more diligent in your focus on Jesus in your life? Maybe that could be by finally taking the time to daily spend time with him in his word and through prayer. By taking extra time you have right now, maybe reading a book that will encourage you in your faith, will give some light on these doubts that you've been living with. Maybe just and how to handle your relationships in a more godly way. There are incredible resources, incredible men and women God's given vast wisdom to, and they've put this wisdom into books for us. And if you're looking for any of those resources, we have a lot of suggested uh, books and sermons you can go check out on challengecsuc.com. Whatever, whatever faith action step you need to take this week, I want to close our time in prayer by praying for you that God will give you the boldness to act. So let's pray together. Dear Lord, thank you so much for calling us to an exciting, active faith in you. Thank you for being a God that just blows our minds over and over, that our faith in you can keep on growing more and more and more because you are so vast and so powerful that we could never have too much faith in you because you'll never give up. The more we lean on you in practical, active ways in life, 
the better life goes. I ask you to please help every single one of us this week to take an action step of faith to lean on you in a real way. I praise things in Christ's name. Amen.